Welcome to episode 32 of What's That Sound podcast. My name's Stu Watts, and today I interviewed Lachlan Gould, aka Magoo, who is a two-time ARIA award-winning producer. He is currently a mixer, as well as being a lecturer at the University of the Sunshine Coast. He's worked with some absolutely iconic Australian acts, such as Midnight Oil, Powderfinger, Regurgitator, Spiderbait, and heaps more. In this episode, we talked about his DIY ethic and his approach to capturing musicians as they are. Sometimes that involves leaving mistakes in, as well as his focus on making the song as strong as possible, and also the hard work that's required to being the best that you can be. As always, thanks for checking this podcast out. If you can do us a favor by sharing the podcast on your social media or in a conversation, that helps us spread the word out and get it out to as many people as possible, as well as making sure you're subscribed or following on the podcast platform that you are currently listening or watching this on. I hope you enjoy this episode number 32 with Magoo. Let's go. You're listening to What's That Sound with your host, Stu Watts. What's going on, everyone? Welcome to another episode of What's That Sound Podcast. My name's Stu Watts, and today I am here with Lachlan Gould, a.k.a. Magoo. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Stu. This is awesome. I'm very happy to have you, and uh, I'm looking forward to our chat and see what we can get out of this. And, uh, you know, you've got a long history of, uh, you know, working with uh, some of Australia's greats, so very keen, very excited. So uh, what we might do, though, to start off with is just uh, get a bit of an about you and what you do currently. Okay, well, do you want the OG story? Sure, let's go for it. Because it's, it's a good one. Yeah. And... I'm, I'm presuming this is the platform to tell it. Yeah, let's go. So, uh, let's go. So I, I guess it all starts, um, you know, in, with a love for music. I kind of, you know, grasped grasped onto music uh, pretty, well, youngish, like around mm. 10. Um, uh, and, you know, getting into like ACDC and Kiss and things mm. like that. Like, a, So, you know, I'm... I was born in 1970, so that was sort of 1980 when Kiss Dynasty was the thing. Yeah. And, um, you know, like then getting into high school, I started maybe turning more to alternative music, probably through David Bowie, like Let's Dance, mm. and then exploring some of his more uh, earlier works. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, that kind of started leading to the independent record stores in Brisbane, the Im- import record stores. Cool. And also to like a friend's brother's record collection that yeah, was right. littered with the Ramones albums. Fantastic. And it kind of just opened this door to sort of punk and Australian in indie music, which was kind of huge at the mm. time. Well, it was certainly big in the import record store. Yeah. And I spent a lot of my high school years spending any extra money I had buying import records. So things like The Scientists and 
uh, well, you know, they're Australian, uh, the birthday party, but also like the Ramones. We collected all the Ramones albums between us and you could only get them on, on import. Yeah. Um, so and that, that kind of led to an interest in, you know, particularly punk rock, uh, an interest in having a crack. You know, that's yeah. the best part about punk rock. It's DIY, have a go. Yep. So me and a mate started learning guitar and I often say this is my first uh, decision as a producer mm. and that was that I was a pretty shit guitar player. Okay. <laughs> um, you know, like I, I could do it. Yeah. Uh, p- perhaps it, it's actually my mate got a really cool guitar teacher and I got a really daggy one. Uh, and yeah. uh, he would sort of walk in with Ramon songs, which honestly is so easy to work yeah, out. Yeah. But he would he would walk in with Blitzkrieg Bop and go, oh, can you teach me how to play this? And yeah. he would teach him how to play it. And meanwhile, I, I had a guitar teacher who was teaching me to sight read yeah. and, you know, I was playing Credence Clearwater Revival and The Beatles, which at the time I just hated. I was yeah, not right. into it at all. I'm a massive Beatles nut now, yeah. <laughs> but but back then that was not part of what what we were into, yeah, and yeah. I just kind of didn't it. I guess I didn't practice much. I just didn't take to it. Mm. Uh, but my friend did, and he started a band, and uh, I actually had a I had an Aria SG copy um, that was my guitar, and I had an amp. And probably the key here was he didn't have an amp, but he was in a band. Um, uh, so, you know, I'm talking like I'm 15 here. Yeah, yep. Um, and this is Brisbane in the 80s. It was kind of, you know, Joe Bajocki peterson was still uh, in mm-hmm. and, you know, corruption was rife and mm-hmm. it was fine for sort of 15, 16-year-olds to be hanging out in pubs. Yeah, exactly. If yeah, you're in yeah. the right <laughs> pub. Yeah. If you're in the wrong pub, you'd get arrested. <laughs> um, and, you know, particularly white skin, you know, suburban kid, you were fine. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, he started uh, playing in these bands and, would you know, they were getting a few gigs and I would ha- I would loan them my amp. So I kind of became the roadie for the band. Cool. And, um, you know, that, that kind of led to doing lights for the, mm-hmm. for the band. And I remember doing lights at the Orient Hotel in Brisbane where the light show was literally a, 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 police, a, a piece of wood with four light switches on it and you were just turning the light switches on and off in yeah. time with the music. There were cans up on the stage, but they were just regular light switches. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, Brisbane was pretty dark back in mm. the in the mid, uh, you know, to late 80s. And, uh, you know, doing lights and stuff kind of, you know, the light desk was always next to the sound desk and it kind yeah. of had me sort of looking at the console kind of going, well, maybe I can do that. Mm-hmm. And it probably let, you know, through high school... That, that was kind of through high school and then um, after school I did, I started a mechanical engineering degree. Right. I kind of did did what my father wanted me to do, went to university, which he never did. And um, uh, I, was, I was doing that but I kind of was still just addicted to music and going to gigs yeah. every weekend. And um, I had a good mate, Jeff Lovejoy, and uh, he did a sound course at a place called Pyramid, which was 
in the Target building in the Valley in Brisbane. Right. Yep. Which which was an old, you know, it was a, it was a Target department store. It was like the biggest department store for a while in Brisbane, yep. but it had left and abandoned this building, and musicians moved in, and you could hire a space cool. there really cheap. And uh, there was a recording studio in there, and um, they mainly did jingles. But sort of, uh, so for six months, it was twenty weeks. I did a course. It was three hours a week, uh, and it, basically it was just running you through signal flow. And yeah, yep. we we recorded one song, I think. Mm-hmm. So this was around third year of uh, of the engineering degree. And um, I did this course and, of course, I, I loved it. I was kind of ad- addicted to the sound thing. Yeah, yeah. And throughout the course, so many of the people uh, in the course, I, I don't even know what they were doing there. They just sort of weren't that interested. There was probably two of us that were really yep. into it. Yeah, And And at the end of it, the guy said, look, you, you're kind of, you've got an ear for this. You should probably think about pursuing this. So yeah. I kind of took, took that on and went, oh, great. And uh, at the same time, uh, I'd done a subject in mechanical engineering called noise and vibrations. Cool. Uh, so it was all, it was just the physics of sound basically. That's pretty cool. And I, I went from, in the engineering degree, went from getting passes and credits, like just floating, just skating yep. through to this one subject, I got a HD. Yeah. Uh, and it was like, oh, okay, I'm getting a bit of a sign here. Yeah. This is all, this is all in this two-week period right. in, this would have been 1990, in the middle of 1990. Cool. And there's a third moment here where um, uh, a mate... I called up a mate. I, I saw a thing in the local street press that Marshall were having, uh, they were releasing the JCM 900. Mm. So it's 1990. Um, they're having a, you know, a, a product launch at a pub mm-hmm. and there was a door prize of a Yamaha four-track. Cool. And, you know, so they basically had someone on stage shredding, while playing to backing tracks on this four track. And at the end of the night, they're going to pull a name out of the hat and you'd win the four track. That's cool. And I thought, no one's going to go to this. I reckon there's a good chance that I'm going to win the four track. So I went, I had no intentions to buy a JCM 900. So I went with my mate and they drew my name out of the hat. Unreal. And so I, I, it was kind of my ticket. So I, I had a four track recorder. And I, I just started doing demos for bands. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that, it's kind of that two-week moment really sort of said to me, mm. this is what you should be doing. That's so cool. But at the same time, I still finished my degree. Sure. Uh, but because I did, I did this course, I started mixing live, although live sound was not a part of the course, but I just assumed that I could do that. Yep. So obviously there was a lot to learn. I just learned on the mm-hmm. job and usually did walk-ins where I didn't have to tune the PA or set it cool. up and yep. eventually I learned how to do that, but, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, so I was mixing live while I was um, studying. Uh, I finished my degree uh, like a good boy um, <laughs> And I actually tried to get a job in the noise and vibrations field and I sort of, you know, I, I, I did a, you know, there was a research subject at the end and I, I did that. I, I kind of focused on that. 
and I, th- there was just no work. It was uh, yeah. it, yep. it was what Paul Keating described as the recession we had to have. Sure. Uh, it was sort of in 1990, but in 1991 businesses yep. were not hiring graduates. Yeah, right, yep. So it kind of just led me down the sound road and I, yeah. I got a job at a studio called Red Zeds, uh, which was five rehearsal rooms and a recording studio. Yep. Uh, and it was very Brisbane-styled. When I say a recording studio, it was a 24-track, one-inch Tascam yep. uh, tape machine with a Tascam console. It wasn't floating floors. Um, yep. Yep. You know, the studio was a distance away from the rehearsal rooms but not enough that the rumble <laughs> yeah, didn't yeah. come through. So, you know, the high-pass filter was always in yeah, on the desk except, yeah. except on, the kick, on the kick drum. But it was kind of uh, getting that job uh, where, you know, my job initially was just looking after the, the, the rehearsal rooms, yep. uh, serving, you know, chips and drinks to the bands and uh, getting the PAs going. But part of it was once everyone was up and rehearsing, you could just hang out in the recording studio and yep. um, wait till someone beckoned you back to the to yeah. the counter. Yeah. So, yeah, I did that for a year and then, you know, after a year I ended up uh, being kind of, I guess, what was called the demo boy where, where you'd, you'd get whatever jobs came in through the door that no one else yep. wanted to do. Yep. So uh, that, that, that's kind of... That's kind of where it all started. Yeah. Well, I think, um, you know, I can relate to to some of that stuff being I grew up on punk rock as well. My friend had a uh, four-track recorder that we used to demo our tracks on. Um, You know, I didn't get any jobs in in any recording studios until now but uh, until 2019 when I started working here at Marshall Street. But before that it was uh, I had my own 16-channel Mackie uh, interface that, I was able to use as a live desk as well, but I was mixing live and all that sort of stuff. But I think the the great thing about and what I can relate to um, is when you get those sorts of, you know, small pieces of gear like a four track or something or when you're in a, a pub and you're just starting to learn about sound and all the gear and that sort of thing, you get it from a really kind of grassroots um, kind of angle. You're not necessarily taught all of the ins and outs, even though you know you learnt um, in that in the uh, in that environment, that schooling environment, somewhat alongside that. You do get a very grassroots and kind of DIY way of going about things, and I, th- I think it influences a lot of what we do now when we have been doing it for a long time. Um, yeah, uh, what do you think about that? Uh- it's 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 never left me. So yeah. like like that four track, I I got as much as possible out of that four track, and it was mm. that four track that got me the first job. Mm-hmm. So what I what I used to do was um, I would do demos for the bands, mm. and I would I would say to them, look, you know, if you just book a session on a Saturday afternoon when it's really quiet, mm. all the other rooms are empty, so we can mm. grab mics. From all those rooms, we can use. I'll grab another mixing desk, mm. and I'll do a you know fully mic up the band and do a premix and put it on one track. Great, and and then I'll put you know the guitars on another track and then the vocals yeah. and then we'll bounce all of that to one track. That's so I'd make up these really sophisticated kind of multi-track track recordings on this mm. uh, four-track cassette, you know, which are pretty shit. But and did you learn I, that from someone, or was that something that you were just like, I wonder if I could do this, and it just sort of worked. 
a bit of column A, column B, because yeah. uh, my mate Jeff, he had a four-track as well. He had mm-hmm. a really nice Akai one. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was more through the manual I kind of learned mm-hmm. how to bounce. Yep. And, you know, there was a graphic EQ on it and you could mm-hmm. bounce through the graphic EQ and cool. get everything right. And uh, my mate Jeff, I would borrow four tracks that he'd done and I would mix them. Yeah. And I just, you know, play around with, with things trying to work out how to get a good mix. And that kind of taught me about what to put on each track and the yeah. best way to get a good sound. So, and I'm, and I'm guessing, you know, also studying the engineering stuff, there would have been a lot of, you know, scientific research based uh, teaching, which probably led you to go, I wonder if I can understand these pieces of gear fully before I actually, you know, apply. I, I guess, you know, use them properly from the start. And at, at the time, I didn't really put two and two together. I didn't yeah. really link, link the two so much, mm. like the physics of sound mm. and the audio engineering bit. Like when I studied the audio engineering stuff, it wasn't, it was very pragmatic. It was just, mm-hmm. here's a microphone, mm-hmm. you plug it in the wall over there and then it comes up in the patch bay over there mm-hmm. and then you hit record. You know, it, it wasn't like... This is how a diaphragm works. Yeah. I can't even remember being told the difference between dynamic and condenser. Yeah, right. So it was very pragmatic and and I, I just, part of it is just, I guess, my brain. I was mm. very, you know, I obviously had that maths and physics bit mm. with engineering, but then I was also very creative and I kind of just put the two together and kind mm. of out, out the other end comes Magoo. Mm. But back to your initial thing, the DIY thing, very, very important with Brisbane mm. and it's something that I kind of continue to look at today, which kind of mm. brings us back around to the first question of like mm. what are you doing today? Mm. And I, I now, you know, I'm, I'm a lecturer in music at the University of the Sunshine Coast. Mm-hmm. I mainly teach production but I also do a bit of songwriting and performance and yeah. live sound and just whatever's needed. Yeah. Um, but I've found just the scene in Brisbane it's very different to Melbourne and Sydney. It's always been very DIY mm. and that's always been a part of my approach to the mm. recording studio. Yeah. Well, I, I obviously want to get into some of the stuff that you've worked on and kind of break that down a bit. But while we're still in the early days, um, you know, what sort of things were you listening out for when you were recording? Were you having a, a very much of a producer hat on that at that time or did that develop a lot? kind of as time went on with songwriting and, you know, arrangement and things like that? Was it much in your head when you were doing those early jobs? No, no, no. I've I've really, so, you know, I I often say, you know, like I'm I'm not a musician but, you know, like I am. It's, it's, you know, I'll take that Brian Eno, like the studio is my instrument, uh, sort of Brian Eno approach. Um, But I'm... I'm kind of I'm happy to let musicians be musicians and mm. and let them do their thing. But initially, early on, I really just think I was learning how to engineer, mm. and we didn't in Brisbane. There wasn't really that process of assisting, you know, mm. some legendary producer. Um, you know, it happened very very few times. Um, these a few assistant gigs, but generally, it was Jeff, my mate and myself and we were just trying to work it out together. Yeah. Like he yeah. would have a session and I'd, I'd 
talk to him about it and then I'd have a session and we'd, pl- we'd play it to each other and awesome. talk about sounds. Like this is before YouTube. Oh, yeah. This is bef- before the internet. So all we had was sound on sound. It was even before Audio Technology magazine. Yeah, There was yeah. Mix magazine. That, you know, there was just a few magazines, a few Skerricks, and we would learn little bits as we went. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I just, I just learnt on the job. But the one thing mm. I did learn was that you could make things sound better if you organise the parts. Like often mm-hmm. people come in, they're playing, playing too much, they're really busy, and you just can't, there's just no space for the sound. Mm. So I worked mm. out that reducing people's parts, trimming the fat is kind of the best way to kind of uh, make things sound good. And that kind mm. of, you know, led me to kind of arranging a lot more and mm-hmm. sitting with bands and band rooms and suggesting, oh, maybe we should halve that bit or double that bit and we'll turn this bit off there. Mm. And um, I think also console automation really uh, led the way a lot in maybe arranging things while you're mixing, which mm-hmm. um, was, was kind of something I was never afraid to do. Mm-hmm. And I, I think in Brisbane there were a lot of people, because it was very DIY-based and it didn't have that kind of foundation of, of knowledge really, of, mm-hmm. of like having these really experienced producers to show younger people what to do. We were all working it out by ourselves. Mm. But I, I think the one thing was... I was never afraid to just jump in and try mm. stuff and, you know, I think for some engineers in town, in Brisbane at, at that stage, would have been afraid to hit the mute button on, on someone mm. that they've recorded throughout the whole song. Sure. But I'm like, hey, it's going to be better for the song and, you know, yeah. you talk to the band and they go, yeah, that sounds great. And, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. so I, I kind of got a name for uh perhaps doing what the band wanted and not not so much what was in the engineer's book mm. um uh yeah and it's you know it was also a very fertile scene well at, at, i mean at the, at the i time. think here is where we could probably list off some of the uh <laughs> artists that you know you've worked with you know uh bands such as regurgitator obviously you're kind of known as being somewhat of an extra member of regurgitator um you've pretty much worked on all their stuff right is that accurate to say? Oh or? well, a lot. Not, of it. <laughs> yeah, a, a lot of a lot of the the record company era, right? Okay, because you know, yeah, cool. they've being true DIY, they do a lot of it themselves these yeah, days. Yeah, yeah. And then you know some of the other bands, huge names like Powderfinger, Midnight Oil, um, Spider Bait, Art versus Science, Butterfingers, and one of my favourite albums, uh, Front End Loader, The Last of the v- V8 Interceptors. I love that album so much. Oh what. It's That's somewhat fantastic. unknown, but <laughs> but um, you know, some of the all of these bands, they're, they've you know, Aussie alternative, like you said, it was so fertile in the nineties. It was so, it was somewhat abstract. It, what like when you listen to it now, I listen to it now, and it's like the arrangements of the music. Um, it's not just this standard verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus, end. It's it's kind of all over the place, and you know, I want to know how much of that you had a part of were you involved in the arrangement of the songs or was it kind of like these bands had these songs and you were just like yep sounds great let's let's put it to tape or bit of column a column b like like i i have been very much um like as a producer i kind of really only want to step in when i feel like there's something either not working or that could be better Mm -hmm. and 
uh, you know, like I, I often sometimes uh, my naivety around musical theory is an advantage mm-hmm. because I'll just say to the band, look, something's not working here. Can we sort of try and fix this bit? Mm-hmm. And uh, that then leaves the ownership to the band. They're either going to mm-hmm. agree and go, oh, yeah, I see what you mean, yeah, and, and they talk amongst each other and go, hey, let's... Let, let, let's try this. Mm. And then I'm like, yeah, that's it. That's perfect. Oof. You know, so, but they take ownership over the part, mm. even though I've steered it, mm. uh, they'll take ownership over that, that sort of um, change. Mm-hmm. But generally I'll only want to step in when I feel like something could be better or something's gone wrong mm-hmm. and and I'll make a suggestion. Very rarely am I making the suggestion that is like, the, the you know, the thing. Yeah, sure. Over time, I got you know I've gotten really well involved in arrangements, but things like like front end loader they were supreme mm. arrangers. Like Pete is incredible at sort of at arranging the bits of the songs and and how they all go. And Regurgitator as well, mm. you know, pretty amazing at at uh, arranging songs. Although mm. I, I'd sort of I guess they're probably the one of the bands where I probably had more creative input than some mm. of the others, you know, where I'll yep. get in and, you know, totally change things when I'm mixing or or, mm. or or wherever. So, yeah, it's, for me, I, I've always just been kind of addicted to the sound of records yeah. and, and good records and it's through that that I... Uh, you know, like that's where I'll make a suggestion to change an arrangement or to change a part. It'll be mm-hmm. like it's just not clear enough or it's getting in the way of the mm-hmm. vocals or, or 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 whatever. Yeah, I love it. Um, so when it comes to working with all these different styles of bands, you know, crossing genres, some of them are more pub rock sort of stuff, some of it's electronic based. Do you have a kind of a generic approach to how you work with bands from the start until, you know, when you finish working with them or is it dependent on the members, how they, what music they're into and that sort of thing? Yeah, it's definitely, I'll take it project by project. Uh, well, you know, I, I don't do a lot of recording these mm-hmm. th- these days. I'm mainly just mixing. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, if, if, if I think back to when I was... Um, recording a lot um you know there's obviously things I I like to do one Mm -hmm. thing that I did start to like doing probably post unit uh by regurgitata was recording one song at a time Mm -hmm. uh which may not seem that radical now but 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 back then it was definitely Mm. uh it was just the way the system worked because you'd be booking out a studio for three weeks or six weeks or or something you'd want to get the record done in that time and often that led to let's record all the drums for the record and Mm -hmm. let's record all the bass for the record or let's then now we'll overdub all the guitars and I just always felt like it was like a sausage factory Mm. and um when we were doing unit, the band didn't have any songs. Mm. Um, they had two songs. So we recorded those two songs and then went, right, what are we going to do now? And they said, Magoo, you mix those songs and we'll write some more. And <laughs> awesome. It, and, and it, but it, the, the whole process was kind of um, like it, 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 it sort of, uh, it, it helped guide the whole record because we had a couple of songs finished mm. and then, Actually, um, 
uh, everyday formula got mastered and then was being played on Triple J while we were, sure. I think we were four, four or five songs into the record. Yeah, wow. So we were, you know, when you get a few runs on the board, it, it kind of just, uh, it, it just helped build everyone's confidence and they kind of knew what the record was going to sound like. Yes. Um, whereas like before that, it just felt like you wouldn't know what the record would sound like until you're in the final four days mm. where you're trying to drain, where you're trying to get someone to sing for four days straight. <laughs> and invariably the last two days would just suck. Yeah. And you'd have yeah. to blow it out and do something else and then come back in. And I, I just hated it. So I was, I, my ethos was always try and keep everyone involved all the time. Yeah. So, and that means the drummer. Keep them there, you know, try and record a drum track like in the final bit of the recording session mm-hmm. um, and, you know, to try and record a vocal as, as soon as you can. So that's probably something I'd, I'd uh, try mm. but it didn't always happen like that. Like, yeah. um, you know, I some guess with bands. That, like, I guess with that sort of approach as well, it kind of keeps um, the whole writing process somewhat fresh and you're kind of really able to focus on the song and make the song as strong as it possibly is rather than looking at it as a whole album and being like, let's make the album great, but maybe you're not paying as much attention to each individual, you know, part of every section of every song. Um, And so to me that shows in an album like Unit where each song has its own sound, it's like they're just it's diverse and, you know, each song is so strong and why it's still, you know, known as being such a, a, a classic album, I guess. Yeah, I well, yeah. well, with Regurgitator, like, that was very intentional. We were mm. trying, you know, they were trying to regurgitate popular culture mm. and twist it, usually with the lyrics, you know, oh, let's make this sound like the Beatles, but we'll yeah. sing about the, you know, pornographization <laughs> of, you know, marketing in general, you know. Yep. So And there'll be, you know, uh, you know, obviously lots of swearing and all, all of that kind of stuff yep. in the middle of this kind of beautiful sounding pop song. Mm, yep. um, so that was always their thing. But I, I definitely took that with me and I was always trying to make a song sound as good as the song possibly could and do what the song needed. I didn't really care too much about um, an album aesthetic so much. Mm. I really liked each song having an individual sound. And, mm. you know, when when I was in studios, I'd, I'd be like, okay, yeah, we might record one or two songs, we'll do the beds mm. and then we'll overdub some vocals and, you know, overdub on the songs and we'll get a couple finished and everyone's feeling good. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, let's record some more. And I'm like, right, let's move the drum kit and put it in a different spot just to make mm. it sound different. And yeah. and I'll put three mics on it instead of ten and, yeah. and just really kind of change things up. And I wouldn't do it just for the sake of it. I'd be doing it because that's what I thought yeah. that song kind of called for. Uh, and I kind of always really enjoyed that sort of perhaps, uh, you know, very different to that American kind of, you know, like Green Day where they'll spend two weeks just getting a drum sound and then hit yeah, record yeah. for the drums for the whole record. So but I, think I that's, certainly wasn't, wasn't into that. That's also yeah. what's like a lot of fun in the mixing process as well when you have vastly different sounds and you're trying to, you know, I guess collate it into a cohesive uh, thing for the album but it's so much fun when, you, when you've when you only got, you know, three mics, like you were saying, on a drum kit. It's like, hey, now I've got to 
try and get the best sound out of these three mics and you're limiting yourself and you're kind of forcing yourself into a sound that you maybe can't do as much with but gives it such a unique sort of character. Yeah, definitely. I, I think I've always, you know, tried to chase the character in in a song and that, that's kind of that appeals to me more mm. than it's sounding pristine or, or, or perfect. Mm. Um, and I still, I really encourage students now to limit your options mm. because, you know, there's still so many options. Like you, yeah. you can record, a, uh, you know, like like the Black Keys will record one mic mm. and then, you know, Chad Blake's going to go through and use Drummagog to put kick and snare samples on, on everything and it still sounds fucking yeah. awesome, yeah. you know. 100%. So there's still so many options when you limit yourself. Yeah. So, you know, we're... And, and, you know, like I, I feel kind of lucky that I started working on tape. Yeah. Um, but when, you know, when you were working on tape, you worked really hard to try and create options. Mm. You had 24 tracks, you know, when you're lucky with a big budget um, uh, recording, uh, you might have two 24 tracks synced up. But generally I was working on 24 track and you would do everything you could to create options, you know, when when you're mixing or, uh, yeah, like basically leaving those options for the end. But now it's all about reducing those options because there's yep. just, you can just do whatever oh. you want and, you know. And every uh, different plug-in having, you know, the the thousands of sounds you can obtain by just putting one different plug-in on and, or, you know, even all the plugins that have multi effects and all this sort of stuff, like you could really just sit there and waste time. And yeah, so it's really important to narrow those options for sure. Yeah, it's super important to narrow, like, and, and I would say to people starting out that um, in the same way that with the four track, I just squeezed every little bit of sound that I could out of that thing. Uh, you know, limit your plug-in choice. Maybe mm. just choose a few mm. and try and get as much as you can out of those uh, out of those plugins. Yeah. Uh, and then when you're bored of those, look for something else. You one, know, yeah. you can always A B. You can always try what you would normally do, and then go. Oh, instead of using Fab Filter, I'm going to use an SSL emulation and mm -hmm. see what that does. Yeah. And if you can make it better then go for it, you know. Mm. So mm. it's it's that kind of thing of just trying to keep yourself interested mm. uh, and try and keep your workflow efficient, you know. It's mm. really easy to get lost, particularly um, when you've got thousands of plugins. you know, mm. the, at the studios at the university, you know, the plug-in list is just ridiculous. Yeah. And for a new <laughs> student walking in and they look at EQ and there's like 500 different EQs, they're like, why? <laughs> Which fucking one do I choose, man? <laughs> yeah. And what's the difference? Yeah. You know, they yeah. all turn up the treble or turn up the bass, you know? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Hey, thanks so much for listening so far. There is plenty more to come, so don't go anywhere. I just wanted to let you know that this podcast is made completely independently by myself with no sponsors. So if you like what you hear and you would like to show your support, you can send a donation to the PayPal link, paypal.me slash what's that sound. The link is also in the show notes. Thanks so much for your support and let's get back to it. Now we've kind of been talking very broadly about the overall approach to, you know, working with artists and, and, and things like that. But I, I kind of want to get a little bit more nitty gritty into 
you know, when you're, first of all, we'll do producing, when you were producing a lot more, was there key things that you were, you know, analyzing and looking for when you first start working with the band and throughout the process? And then we'll talk about mixing. Yeah, well, I, I guess it always starts with pre-production, um, listening to demos and just trying to see if the song makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, is it in the right key? Is it the right tempo? All that kind of usual stuff. Yeah. Um, and I, I usually try and see if I can write out the arrangement. Yeah. And it helps me... One, stay engaged with the song and it's like, oh, what bit am I in now? Is this the verse? I don't know. This bit's different. This isn't the verse. Where am I? And then and, and thinking, uh, trying to take my uh, kind of producer hat off and just think about it as a listener. Mm. And, and then if there's something that I feel is a bit weird or whatever, talk to the band about it. Mm. Talk to the artist like, you know, oh, when I was listening to this, this bit here really kind of jarred and didn't really uh, work for me. But then the artist might say, oh, but I'm trying to do that here. This is the narrative yep. of the song and there's this jarring bit, you know. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, that's great. So then uh, often if if I felt like a bit confused or something in there, um, uh, I'll be thinking that it's not obvious enough. So mm-hmm. when we're recording it, I'll be trying to make it as jarring as possible, you yep. know, doing whatever yep. I can. Um uh, so it's it's that kind of thing. I always listening to it without the artist, uh, writing down your thoughts, and then mm-hmm. talking to the artist. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, making sure that each part makes sense and has a purpose. Yeah. Um, so that when you're in the studio, um, you know, you can be thinking about the sounds, and you can still let things become their own thing. They might change. Mm-hmm. you've got a pretty good map of, of what you're trying to do. Yep. And, you know, like when, when we're talking sort of back earlier on about the earlier stuff, after unit I went through this long spate of not doing that. Right. Um, uh, so, you know, because unit there were no songs when we went in mm-hmm. and, you know, invariably we recorded a few songs twice because the first version was shit or the first yeah, version right. was good and then just not what they were looking for. Um, but because of the success of that record, a lot of people got me in without there being proper demos. Oh, my girl, work without demos. So like Midnight Oil, <laughs> they didn't have demos. Right. They were sick of demoing. They, they said for Blue Sky Mining they did demos for nine months and by the time they went to the studio they hated the songs. Yeah, that's uh, fair and, enough if you're working on it for nine fucking months. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's because the record company are like, oh, you know, I just don't hear the single yet, you know, and they, they kind of keep pushing. Yeah. So, yeah, like, you know, the Spider Bait record, no demos. Oh, there were demos but they were pretty scratchy. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. So I just went through this whole spate of like working with bands with no demos and when I look back on it, I think Unit was the only record that worked. You know, there mm. was some moments on those other records but mm-hmm. uh, it was Unit just worked because of what it was. Um, so, so can you um, kind of talk through that more when it comes to like, are you part of the songwriting of the song or are you sitting back and letting them just play and going that, that bit, what's, what was that? Do that again. Or, you know, well, I can't say that hasn't happened. That's happened a lot. Um, but with unit though, it was more or less, 
um, because there's the two songwriters. You've got Ben and yeah. Kwan. Yeah. Uh, we'd record a Kwan song um, and then Kwan would go away and we'd record a Ben song and then mm-hmm. we'd call up mm-hmm. Kwan and say, hey, man, come in, you've got to play some guitar. Right. And he'd play some guitar, he'd play us a demo of what he's been working on and then he'd probably go home and finish it because, like, you know, some of like, you know, I will lick your asshole. So many words, like yeah. the, you know, it took him ages to write that, and yeah. um, uh, so you know, I'd finish off Ben's song, and by the time I've mixed it, Quan would come in with another song to track, and then Ben yeah. would go away and write, and invariably a lot of Quans were sequenced and, you know, very intricate, where Ben's were a bit more jammed and in the studio. Yeah, yeah, cool. So, like, Regurgitator really liked, um, uh, they were pretty good at. Uh, arranging the ideas themselves, I would pipe in every now and then. Yeah. And like I said, would make decisions on the console. But most of the time they were doing it themselves and I would just run around moving mics and changing things around while they're jamming. Sure. Um, but invariably, like, Quan hated jamming, so <laughs> it, it, it kind of just slowly stopped the, yeah, the right. whole sort of jamming thing. Um, Sounds to me like there's, like, a lot of trust um, kind of in each other in that sort of a process where it's like, yeah, I mean, you do your song, I'll do mine and we'll, and we'll see what happens. And it's not like, oh, I don't care. It's like, no, nah, you like you, I love your songs. You know, that's kind of what it sounds like to me. I oh, definitely, there's a lot of trust amongst everyone. And I, I sort of think trust is the main, I was going to call it a commodity, but it's the main thing that you've got in the studio. You've got to have that trust with one another. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's something I think in Brisbane it was very, very common in amongst all the recording studios when I was starting. Mm. There was always this lack of trust. It was us mm. and them with, with mm. the studio engineer. It was like they wanted to do what was correct and right mm. and they wouldn't let the metres go into the red and they couldn't record with distortion and along comes Magoo who goes, oh, I don't give a fuck, let's just do whatever the song <laughs> needs, you know. Yeah. Um, so and that invariably led to people trusting me to to, to do what the band wanted. So regurg- yeah, there was a lot of trust with Regurgitator. They trusted yeah. each other and they're always just looking out for the song. No one really mm. cared who played bass or who played drums mm. or who played guitar. Um, it, it was just whatever made the song better. Mm. So that's Unreal. what we were always trying to do, yeah. Sounds like so much fun to be to be fair. Like I love those those times in the studios when yeah, you just go with it and someone comes up with something, it's just like just go, just do it, just lay it down and we'll see what happens. And there's not like, oh, but I'm supposed to be playing guitar or whatever. Like that really isn't conducive to a good session. Do you have yeah. those sorts of moments that you have to navigate? Um, or is there any that you can remember that you you've had to be really like, guys, we need to just focus on the actual song here? Yeah, those things always pop up and like not every band is like that where it's mm. like people people are happy to change instruments to do whatever's right for the song. Yeah. Um but you know in saying that I I, I kind of I'm always wanting to get the best out of the artist. Mm. And if that's a bit shit that's a bit shit. That's what mm. the the band sounds like. I'm I'm mm. not going to go in and uh you know completely change things. I might edit a bit harder maybe yep. but you know I'm, I'm i'm also talking about on tape you know like if sure. if you couldn't get a great performance out of someone but people like the band and wanted to hear a recording 
That's mm. that's how it goes. Like I'll get mm. a better performance. Mm. I'll get the performance that is them on their best night times three, you know, yeah. and edit them together. But, you know, it's I'm not going to replay the part or like and yeah, there yeah. were people around town that would do that. Like the band's gone home, the, the part's a bit shit, let's just replay it and they'll, they'll yep. never know. I kind of just wasn't into that. I was happy to let something be a bit garagey and loose if it needed to be. And I still have that same ethos in in Pro Tools um, or, or, you know, the DAW. Mm. Uh, you know, I'm not always going to jump on Auto-Tune mm. um, or Melodyne. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I will if it annoy, If it takes me out of the song, I'm going to try and tune it. But if something's a bit yeah. out of tune, I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not that fast. It, it, yeah. And... The listener is not that fast. I feel like it's we're still in this kind of loop where everyone feels like everything needs to be perfect and it doesn't. Mm, absolutely. Yeah, I agree 100%. <clears throat> um, one thing, um, you know, that always stands out to me for for music in general is like when you hear those little intricacies, if the drum sound isn't perfect, if they're a little bit out of time and it grabs your attention in a good way, you're like, oh, that was kind of weird what was that that's always to me way more enjoyable than hearing every band sound the same because they've all been like you know I I edit to grid a lot but it's like you don't want every drum sound to be exactly the same because that's what that genre sounds like or something like that it just to me you lose that experience with the artist because it's you know we all grew up loving putting on headphones and just losing yourself to music and I think those sorts of experiences are few and far between now because of that way of recording. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's like, you know, I, I, I think I've already mentioned Brian Eno once. Like I love the oblique strategies and one of them is the uh, honour thy mistake is hidden intention. Mm. And, you know, I just... I just love that one um, oh, because mistakes are often the best part and, and often... Um, uh, yeah, I'm very much. I've often kind of used the Sylvia Massey um, approach, where you sort of get the bed of the song down, you get the fundamental bits down. We've recorded the song, but now there's a bit of time left over. Let's fuck shit up. Let's yeah. let's kind of um, you know experiment for a while, yeah. and you know, and even try and create mistakes. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. you know, it's it's more about not not so much. Um, uh, kind of pointing out, oh, that's that's a mistake. It's more about going, I oh, know that bit's really good. Let's leave it in there, whether it's intended yeah. or not. Um, and and I kind of love that shit. This it's the stuff that yeah, like kind of really draws me into recording. Yeah, is sure. is those kind of moments. Well, let's talk mixing. Um, you say you're mostly doing a lot of mixing these days. Do you have a kind of go-to approach where you always attack one thing first and get that down and then move on to the next thing? Or is it kind of let the song speak to me and I'll, I'll go to what I think needs attention first? Yeah, it's mixing's definitely different from what it used to be um, and that's fine. That's just how, how things go. Mm-hmm. Um, uh I am a bottom-up guy. <laughs> Try and don't don't quote me out of context. Uh, you know, I'll I'll start from the kick drum and move move my way across. But generally, yeah. uh, you know, it, because I'm usually mixing things that I haven't recorded, I'll generally be listening through it. You know, I'll start with the bass drum and listen through it, and I might chuck a plug in on it really quickly, as if I was tracking it. 
and kind of sure. going, how do I want that bass drum to sound? Just put something on it quickly, move along, put the snare up, and I'll just sort of try and get the song up really quickly and try and re- recreate the rough mix. I like to get a rough mix. Yep. Um, have all, all my, my faders kind of sitting in a static mix and then I almost start again. Mm-hmm. And and I'll go through and go, right, okay, the bass drum needs this. I'll kind of have a better idea of what it needs and where it's sitting in the mix. I don't like soloing much. Sure. Um, and it's not like I'll sit on the bass drum for ages, but I, I'll just sort of start again on the drums and then I'll start again on the bass and then kind of just move through it and just jump around everywhere. And it's... Yeah. That part I kind of have always done. Like once I've got a bit of a foundation happening, I'll just jump around. I, yeah. I still miss the console. Um, I used to love, you know, tweaking the vocal and then leaning over and tweaking the snare drum at the same time, which mm. you can't really do anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the recall is just incredible. I just, yeah. you know, it's it's that whole thing that you can always jump back into where you were and and tweak it. I've always been a tweaker and that's mm. probably my downfall with the DAW is you <laughs> the ease just of keep tweaking. Yeah yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. That's it. And so, you know, when you get, say, some stems or multitracks, when when you're listening for it at the start, is there is there times where you're like, oh, this isn't where I need it to be? And have you had to kind of go back to the artist and be like, we need to fix that up or is it always like, no, I'm just going to work with what I've got and get the best out of it as I possibly can? Like it depends on the gig. Um, Hey, I I just want to back up there and just try and try and fix the system. Okay. Because I like the way you said stems or multi-track. Yeah. Can we just... Can we just say multi-track, <laughs> multi-track from now on? Yeah. Because stems is something different. Yeah. And th- everyone, when they say stems, they mean the multi-track. Yeah. So yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm trying to fix the system one student at a time. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and now, you know, maybe if there's other people out there starting out, listening out, it's the multi-track. Stems yeah. is a pre-mix of like the drums. That's yep. a stem. There might yep. be a drum stem. There might be a bass stem, guitar stem. They're not the individual tracks. Anyway. Yeah. No, absolutely. So... Uh, to answer your question, though, um, yeah, it depends on the gig. Uh, d- depends on, um, it, you know, if I've taken it on, usually I'll feel like it's ready. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like to hear things before I start. Um, but but sometimes it's it's just about dealing with what you got and trying to present it in the best way yep. possible. Um, uh, you know, you, you just got to do your best. Um, yeah. So yeah, like it. Yeah, that's depends yeah, on no, the gig. That's, that's fair. And and is there kind of can you remember any specific times when you've done a mix and completed a mix and been like, this is amazing. This is like the best work I've ever done. And what is it about those sorts of you know times? Is there certain elements or is it the song itself? Um, expand on that for me. Yeah, it's definitely the song. Um, you know. I like to think that every time you do a mix, yeah. you always, you know, feel like you've pushed yourself to the to 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 do the best thing you've ever done. But generally, it's it's when the production, the song, and the mix all kind of link in together. That's that's when you know you, you kind of go, yeah, I, I nailed this one. You know. Yep. Um, and it doesn't, you know, it's a rare thing. It doesn't always happen. Um, and sometimes it even, 
you know, I find as a mixer, because you're a bit disconnected from the project, you're not like, you know, when you're a producer, you're like part of the band, you're really involved in it, you're trying to push every part and get everything you can out of every performance and then the mix is just another part of that. Um, sure. But when you're mixing it, sometimes um, I, I I did a project recently called We Are the Kill Sounds. I think that's what they're called. Uh, anyway, it's it's a it's the guitar player from a band called Violetine from the nineties, sure. and I. I I kind of was doing some mixes and then Sean, the guitar player, kept kind of referencing some other mixes that I'd done for him mm-hmm. and I didn't really realise it at the time but I'd go back to that mix, you know, and I'm three or four mixes along and I'd go back to this other mix and have a listen and go, how did I do that? That just sounds awesome. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know if I can yeah. make that sound, that yeah. sound as good as that, you know. Uh, so it's it's just that sort of thing. Like I really do love getting lost in a song and, and connecting with it and just slotting everything into the right spot and it's yeah it is that it's a hard thing to kind of uh you know particularly when i'm now teaching students like trying to show them the way and show them how to do it it's it's actually quite intangible and sometimes you know i don't want to use the word magic but i guess i just did you know it just it just feels like everything comes together and 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 you've you've nailed it yeah yeah for sure and I love what you mentioned about, and I've talked about it before where, you know, I listen back to mixes from five years ago and it's like, how did I do those drums? It's, it's, I have, I love that feeling because, you know, you feel like you've come some, you've come away, you know, you've like, okay, well now I know what I'm doing a little bit more when I approach drums and stuff like that. But yeah, there's something about that vibe of that drum kit that I don't think I'd be able to reproduce today, but it's all about that because you'll do the same thing in five years again and you'll be like, what was I doing then? I've got different plugins, I've got different mics, I've got different band members, whatever it might be. I, I love that feeling as well. So there's something to that. Yeah. Um, we're, we're always trying to move forward but sometimes you've got to look back and go, oh, actually when things were simpler it was pretty good. Yeah, for sure, yeah. yep. Yeah. Now um, with, you know, going through the education system and, and working a lot with younger people is there kind of a a something or, you know, a, a mindset that you see regularly that you maybe want to kind of address and, and be like, you know, let's focus more on this instead of this? Do you think there are some, some people that are just starting out that tend to focus on the wrong areas and, you know, how do you address those sorts of things? Well... Yeah, like a good question um, because I see a lot of students approach particularly studying audio engineering wrong and really uh, it, and part of that is just the framework of the higher education system, you know, so whether you're at SAE or JMC or at a university, you, you know, you, you get sort of drawn into this kind of like, oh, there's... 13 weeks of teaching and then there's this big assignment due and I do that and then it's the holidays and I'll do nothing for yeah. a month. You know, I know some places are on trimesters and there's less of a break. But really learning audio engineering, it doesn't matter where you are or who's teaching you, it's all about doing it. Mm. The more mm. you do it, the more you learn. Like I learned 
pretty much everything myself. Yeah. And of course, I picked up things along the way. And you know, now there's YouTube; it's fantastic. And you can, you know, if you've got the time, you can sit down and learn this, that, and the other. But yeah. you learn so much by doing things on the job. And if you are studying at one of those institutions, it's the as much as you know. There's some amazing teachers out there now, which is great. Um, but I think it's way more important is the the networks of people that you're with, um, you know, the musicians, the other sound engineers and producers, and it's also the time and access to the equipment. Like yeah. get in there on the holidays and do it. Um, you know, I'm, off, I'm always telling my students I can still remember f- filling out the census one year mm. and I was disappointed there was only two boxes for how many hours did you work this, you know, in the last month? Mm. And I'm like, I was working 99 hours a week. Like I I did more than that. 99 was not enough to pick up how many hours of work I was doing. And it's because I loved it. I was just basically Mm. in the studio uh, working or sleeping, you know. Mm. Uh, Somehow I managed to maintain a relationship through all of this. That's probably the (laughs) other thing that's really, really important. Um, But it's just getting in there and doing it and taking advantage of access to the studios wherever you are. Whenever I'm, uh, you know, at at work and if I see the studios empty, uh, it just brings a tear to my eye. It's like, you know, they're amazing studios. When you've left university to use those studios, it's going to cost you like 800, 1,000 bucks a day. Get in there, use it, you know, don't don't let that time sort of go to waste. And that's where you learn, you know, from me, you're just going to hear tips and approaches and all the rest. It'll help, Mm. but you learn so much just by doing it yourself. 100%. And I, I can relate to that when I was in, I went to TAFE for a couple of years and, me and a couple of my mates, one of whom I'm still like really great mates with, we were always in there trying to get as much out of those studios as possible. And, you know, obviously doing the wrong things and not using the right mics in the right places and all this sort of stuff. But that's, that's the sort of stuff that you need to do to, to understand like, okay, I'm going to eliminate that from my decision-making in the future. But the other thing that I tend to see these days working in a studio full-time is you get um, people inboxing you or emailing you and being like, hey, man, um, I want to come in. I want to get some experience. You know, I'm happy to sit in there and this and that. And it's like, great. I love getting those emails. But the 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 lack of follow-through and the just like the lack of like hassle, like hassle me. I want you to be in my face every week being like, hey, is there any time I can come in the studio these days? You'll get one response and then then they disappear and it's like you're not that keen about it. It's like you have to really want to do it. And I, I never did the assistant approach. I was always trying to figure it out by myself but it, it's the same thing. I would work in retail and I would be hassling people that I worked with. Hey, you're in a band. Let's. I want to record you. No, like I don't understand how, yeah, you can't want to keep following through and hassling people about that stuff. Yeah, and, you know, particularly if you're at university just studying music, mm. you know, that's that's a pretty fun subject. You should be into it, you know. Absolutely. It's very different to when I was studying engineering. I totally get you get through a semester, you do all your assignments, you're exhausted. Mm. But, you know, like in, in the music industry, I don't know, that that just happens all the time. Every kind mm. of project is like an assignment and you get to the end of it, you're a bit tired, have a few days off, start again, you know. do Yeah. 
You just and and it's also you know as you were saying before, ma- making mistakes. Mm. Those those mistakes. That's when you learn. You don't learn anything if you don't make mistakes. And no. as as we were saying earlier, sometimes the mistakes are the best bits. Yep. So you got to just get in there, plug things in, and make it make a noise. And yep. Do you like that noise? That's that's the question. Yeah. Is it any it good? Really is. And it's you still know. like that. It's still like that when you're like Doesn't producing change. a band. Yeah, you're like, hey, that's weird. I love it or I hate it. Let's get rid of it. Yeah, it's exactly the same question and you learn stuff every time you do a new project, like working with different artists. You might see a new personality that you didn't see last time or, you know, the way people interact, it's like, oh, that's great. Or the way someone sets up their guitar rig or anything like that. It's just all these little pieces of those puzzles that you can use in the future. Um, it's probably it's probably the one thing I miss the most is the travelling around and going to lots of different studios because I learnt so much by just going to a different studio and seeing how, so, <coughs> excuse me, how another studio is set up or, or whatever. I'd always learn something new and bring that back or I'd go, oh, I've got to buy this piece of gear now and I'd buy some <laughs> sort of new box or, or whatever. But yeah. um. That's 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 sort of what one thing I miss. Yeah. Mm. Do you have now that you've mentioned gear? Let's let's talk about some of your kind of favorite go to pieces of gear. Whether that's hardware, software. What are your what are your kind of love? What do you love working on at the moment? Well, I'll start answering that one by I love using whatever I've got around. Great. You know because. Uh, the most important thing is if you've got an idea and you need to record it, that you've got a microphone, something to record it, you hit record and then you hit play and it comes back. You know, that's the most important thing. (laughs) (coughs) Excuse me. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to gear, you know, like high-end gear, it just makes your job easier. Mm. doesn't necessarily make it better. Mm. If you've got a Neumann microphone and a Neve preamp and you plug it in, it's probably going to sound pretty good. Yeah. You know, there's not a lot you got to do. But that doesn't mean if you've got an SE microphone and a pre-sonus preamp mm-hmm. that you can't make it sound as good. You just might need to work a little bit harder. It might need a couple more plug-ins. You might need to move it somewhere different. You just might need to work a little bit harder. So, yep. you know, I'm sorry to give you an obtuse answer to your question, but you know, because I could just, you know, run off all the cliche, yeah. you know, a Neumann U47 yeah, through yeah. a Neve 1073 with a <laughs> LA2A or a 1176. You know, of course I love mm. all that shit mm. and it's great. Mm. Uh, but at the same time, you know, I, I'm totally into the UAD Apollo gear mm-hmm. um, and the emulations are pretty good. Um, uh, my PhD kind of looked at the the kind of more traditional large format recording studio and then recording bands using an Apollo and a laptop in a house. Yeah, and, yeah. And, you know, I didn't really find that there was, you know, like if you work hard on your laptop, you can do whatever you want. And, mm. um, uh, you know, you could say I kind of did my research before I kind of, you know, went down that road. So, you know, I love the UAD Apollo stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it's, it's super important what you've just said. It's like, and that, that's been my mentality from the start is always just use what I've got and try and get it to where it's listenable. And like it, that, that is where being a good producer 
is like the case and a mixer as well. It's like it really at the end of the day, like you said, it doesn't necessarily matter. Yeah, you got to have less work. But if you've got something that works and sounds good and you can work with it and get it to a place where that that's all that matters at the end of the day, it's like I've always had that. It's like make do with what I've got. I might not have the best mics. I might not have the best, you know, computer or anything like that, but I'm going to work my ass off and and that, again, that's what makes a good producer a mixer it, in my opinion. It, it often comes down to that sort of time, money, balance. Mm. And that's one thing I found in, in, my, in my PhD was, mm. um, you know, like if you walk into a, an amazing studio, you go to 301 and you plug in all the Neumanns, you, you're running through the Neve desk, everyone's happy, but you don't have a lot of time in there. You've got to get it done and get it done quickly unless you're mm. in the upper stratosphere of musicians. You're Taylor mm. Swift on tour or wants to get an idea down. Mm. Sure, she can go in there for as long as she wants. She probably can't because she's got, a, you know, restrictions yeah, yeah. with time. But uh, you know when you plug that gear in, it's going to sound good. If you're at home... You don't have that gear, but the thing you do have is mm. time. You know, you don't have that massive overhead of however many thousands of dollars a day it is to hire that equipment, but you've got time where you can work on it and work on it and work on it till you get it right. And that's kind of as much as you don't want your head to go up your own ass and never get anything completed, it's also your main asset, you know, mm. particularly if you're starting out and you've just got a laptop and a microphone and an mm. interface Time is your biggest asset. Mm, absolutely. I love it. Well, before I uh, finish up these talks, I always like to ask um, for what is your best potential, best piece of advice that you can think of for either producers and engineers and then artists? Okay. Um, I, I think for producers and engineers starting out, it's definitely just do it. Mm. The you know, every time you do it, you'll feel like you're getting better. Mm. I've been doing it for more than 30 years now. I still feel the same way. Every time mm. I get into the recording studio, I feel like I'm learning something and I'm getting better at my craft. That's awesome. Every time I'm mixing a song, you know, I, I feel like I'm getting better at it. Uh, I want, you know, I want that feeling. So it's just do it. Yeah. Yep. Uh, for the more experienced, it's probably... Yeah, you probably don't need to say anything, but it's, you know, the song is number one. It's all about yeah. the song and it's trying to make the tools of the studio work for the song. You know, you're just trying to capture performances and, and get an idea down. Um, uh, don't get lost in what's right and wrong in the recording studio and, you know, what's right, you know, is it on the grid, is it in tune? Yep. No one cares about that stuff. Is it communicating what it's meant to be communicating? Mm -hmm. uh, what was the last one? There was so there uh, was for the oh, for the artists. Yeah, I think yep. for the artists, it's find someone you can trust. Like the studio is all about communication. Mm. So find someone you can trust. Find someone you can communicate with. Mm -hmm. um, and for an artist, like hold on to your ideas. Don't just mm. sort of give all your agency to a producer who, because you feel like you don't understand the environment you're in. Yeah. Um, I think it's really important for artists now 
to have a good knowledge of the studio and, and what's going on. They should at least have the dialogue so that they can um, kind of talk about a sibilant vocal take or, um, you know, to, to try and communicate their their ideas to, to a producer. Yep. So it's really finding someone you can communicate with and someone you can trust. And it might take a few goes. Don't just, mm. you know, spend one day in a studio and then write someone off. Yeah. Um, it's it's really like try and communicate. And if you're not happy with something, just just keep trying to get it to where you want. And it's yep. um, p- persistence, you know, like I know I feel like it's part of the job. I'm a pretty persistent mm. person and I like it when people keep pushing me. No, it's not, it's not right yet, Magoo. Mm. Keep pushing, mm-hmm. you know. Usually most people are saying I've gone too far, uh, which I, I don't mind. Um, but, yeah, you know, be, be persistent and hold on to your ideas and um, uh, communicate is kind of the big ones, yeah. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for your time and, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's really appreciated. And, you know, as I said earlier, I, I love your work and, you know, I've grew up listening to it. So, uh, you know, bit of, bit of a kind of a, a great moment for me, but, um, thanks for your time. If anyone wants to reach out to you and, and have a chat, how can they do that? Oh, well, I exist on the interwebs, but I, I, I my website's magoosound.com. Um, so you can hit me up there. Uh, but you know, I'm on, Facebook and Twitter and Instagram yep. and all, all that kind of stuff. Um, awesome. I'm not super, super active, but uh, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm there. So, you know, you can always yep. DM me and, uh, you know, yeah. But, you know, like if, if you ask me for a recording, I'm probably uh, probably <laughs> going to say I probably don't have time unless there's some kind yep. of massive research project involved. Mm-hmm. Research is the only way I can really record anymore uh Mm. but yeah mixing is something i i I still do i don't have a huge output but uh, i still love mixing and you know hit me up you never know beautiful well thanks again mate appreciate it thanks for having me Stu. this has been awesome thank you all right well um thanks to everyone that has checked this out um you do us a favor do all the usual stuff um subscribe follow share it on your dms in a conversation spread the word we want to get this out to as many people as possible and thanks again and we will see you next time on what's that sound podcast thanks for listening to what's that sound Make sure you hit follow or subscribe on your podcast platform to stay up to date with each new episode. We'll catch you next time.